0: This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is revolutionizing how investors listen to earnings calls and conduct due diligence. It's basically Spotify, but for investors. With Quarter, you can effortlessly search for any company and quickly gain access to their latest earnings calls, M&A announcements, and capital markets days. Plus, it's all absolutely free. Quarter constantly improves its product, and its latest update is no exception. Today, you can search for keywords like free cash flow yield or return on invested capital, and Quarter instantly indexes every company transcript that matches that key phrase. It's incredible. I'm excited to watch the Quarter team roll out more features to make my jobs as an investor even easier. And Quarter is one of the few apps I use every single day. I know you will too once you download it. So head on over to quarter.com. Download the free app on either Android or iPhone and start using it today. That's quarter.com on the Android or iPhone store, and you'll wonder how you ever invested without it. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse, and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, Head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. Before we dive into today's conversation, I wanna to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matemco, the investment office of MIT. Each year Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the Emerging Manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for Emerging Manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful Emerging Managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimko has written for Emerging Stock Pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit Matimco.org global investor. That's M I-T-I-M-C-O.org slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This is Worm Capital's. Q2 2022 shareholder letter titled Continuous Motion, Experimentation, and Innovation. Dear partners, despite the recent market sell-off, the businesses that we own are compounding in value at or beyond our expectations. There's been no change to our long-term investment theses on any of our core positions, and so we've made very few changes to the portfolio in the last three months. We continue to feel extraordinarily bullish on our specific set of investments, Once some of the broader macroeconomic pressures abate, and we are confident they will, we believe we could snap back in relatively short order. Bear markets are inherently uncomfortable, but historically, they have been short-lived. They also have tended to be followed by much longer periods of market growth. As we wrote in our Q1 letter earlier this year, major declines are relatively rare and always followed by 5 to 10 years of good times in our experience. Historically, markets also tend to bottom midway through economic downturns. For any long-term investor, short-term market fluctuations should be considered noise. If anything, they're typically a good time to load up on one's highest conviction ideas. In this letter, we'll discuss two core positions, Tesla and Spotify. Our highest conviction idea, Tesla, continues to execute on its core objectives. Right now, we believe fair value for the business is far higher than the stock price, but we do not believe this discrepancy can exist for much longer. To be clear, this quarter presented significant but temporary challenges for Tesla. In particular, COVID-related shutdowns caused a multi-week idling of Tesla's factory in Shanghai, which halted all vehicle production. Supply chain issues also persisted globally, limiting Tesla's true production capacity. These challenges combined with macroeconomic factors have certainly weighed on Tesla's stock price year to date. Looking forward, however, we remain increasingly bullish on both the business and its stock price. Tesla achieved record production in June 2022. Barring no future factory shutdowns, we believe Tesla is poised to accelerate production in the coming years, far beyond consensus expectations. This quarter, we also released a 90-plus page research report detailing our view on Tesla's near-term and long-term structural advantages, its opportunities, and its likely growth trajectory. We invite you to read the report at the link. The report covers many substantive themes, from Tesla's lead in artificial intelligence to its to its extreme vertical integration. At a very high level, we believe Tesla is on the path to dominate the S&P 500. And we believe this could happen sooner than people might believe. For this letter, we want to emphasize one theme from the report that we may that we think many on Wall Street miss. Tesla is in a class of one when it comes to manufacturing. In fact, we believe Tesla is ushering in an advanced manufacturing renaissance that will drive production speed capacity and margins at an accelerated pace we also believe tesla will soon be generating extreme levels of cash flow which we elaborate on below along with an update on how we view its fair value speed is cash as you'll note above the theme of this quarter's letter is continuous motion experimentation and innovation tesla's manufacturing process is a prime example of experimentation and a first principles approach based on our on the ground research they have made significant strides in the reinvention of the production of a large manufactured good by using extreme automation unique die casting molds and novel stamping processes using tesla's giant gigapress, that speed production of a tesla vehicle by a factor of at least 10x at tesla's new facilities in austin and berlin for instance lines will stamp out car bodies every 45 seconds an order of magnitude faster than any existing production line in the world one of the major themes we see very often in the media and financial press is that incumbent oems or startup ev manufacturers could tweak existing factories to produce electric vehicles at scale this the theory goes will create significant competition for tesla and thus tesla's demand will slow we believe this is a fundamentally incorrect view while oems are well-capitalized startups While OEMs and well-capitalized startups have come to to market with new EV variants in recent months, no other manufacturer has come close to Tesla's ability to generate millions of units of EVs at a 30-plus percent gross margin profile. There's a good reason for this. Tesla's factories, not its cars, are becoming the true drivers of technical innovation. Back in 2020, Elon Musk noted that Tesla needed to redesign its factories from scratch to allow for maximum speed and efficiency, and to meet the company's ambitious ambitions of 50% annualized growth. Speed is cash, and the results of this continuous experimentation and innovation is bearing fruit. In Q1 2022, Tesla generated $2.2 billion in free cash flow, a, 666, a 660% year-over-year increase. Despite challenges encountered in Q2 2022, from COVID lockdowns to supply chain issues, Q3 and Q4 are poised for explosive growth. For a product that has excessive demand, the speed at which a factory can build and deliver goods to customers enables free cash flow to grow dramatically. By designing its new factories with the goal of maximizing volumetric efficiency, Tesla also increases the speed and density of movement within the factory. The goal, of course, is increasing margins, faster cash flows, and more output. A factory that's moving at twice the speed of another factory is equivalent to two factories, Musk noted. And the company that will be successful is the company that with one factory can accomplish what others can do in two or three factories. Later, Musk added, Tesla is aiming to be the best at manufacturing of any company on earth. We agree. In our report, we noted the comparison of Tesla's factories to semiconductor chips. The similarities are striking. Tesla's initial factories were arguably more bloated, larger, and certainly slower, just like early semiconductor chips. Tesla's newer factories in Shanghai, Berlin, and Austin are increasingly more compact, faster, and utilize more volumetric space, enabling far more efficiencies to scale. The use of the third dimension of space generates faster output with a smaller footprint. We believe the financial implications of increasing velocity in the manufacturing process will show up in the P&L, far beyond current sell-side estimates over the next several years. Looking out to 2024, we believe Tesla could deliver 5 million units if existing factories ramp as we expect them to. As of this rating, in mid-2022, the average sell-side estimate is 2.4 million units produced by 2024. This discrepancy in expectations of volume growth is, in our view, creating a significant discount to Tesla's share price today but it will not last forever. To use some basic math, by 2024, if Tesla produces 5 million vehicles at an average sale price of $50,000, that is $250 billion in revenue. On those top line figures, we believe they'd achieve roughly $50 billion in net income, assuming a roughly 20% net income margin in 2024. This would translate to roughly $50 in earnings per share by year in 2024, assuming no further dilution to the stock price, which we do not expect. Based on these projected earnings, our anticipated stock price for year-end 2024 would be around $3,750. This implies roughly 400% upside from where it trades today and a market cap of nearly $4 trillion. Again, this is our conservative view and does not factor in additional earnings growth from the company's energy operations division, full self-driving operations, or other future ambitions such as the humanoid bot, the Spotify machine. In addition to Tesla, we continue to have high conviction in the ability of our other core holdings to outperform. Despite the stock's underperformance year-to-date, we include Spotify in that cohort. At its June investor event, Spotify reiterated its long-term goal of reaching 1 billion users by 2030, driving $100 billion in revenue with 20% operating margins. We believe these goals are not only achievable, but could prove to be conservative in the long run. The company is building what it is calling the Spotify machine. A sort of reinforcement feedback loop of growth new users new new creators and new high margin monetization opportunities we believe spotify's business model will work best at truly global scale and we believe the company is still in its early innings of growth to be clear we don't expect the company to generate excessive profits in the short term as we believe the company should reinvest all available capital into growth and territory expansion it's also worth noting that spotify is free cash flow positive and has a strong balance sheet this reduces the likelihood of further shareholder dilution and lowers near-term risks as shareholders. As investors, we tend to look at our portfolios. one might look at a group of bananas. Some are yellow and ripe and ready to eat now, and others are green and will take some time to ripen. Spotify is a green banana. At scale, Spotify will command significant leverage to increase revenues through renegotiation with labels, subscription price increases, and other high-margin monetization strategies that have yet to launch but are in the product part. Prop- pipeline. Examples include audiobooks, paid podcasts, live audio events, tickets, etc. We believe Spotify's market value today, roughly $20 billion, represents one of the more extreme mismatches between price and value in the market. There are many ways to value a company, but in any risk-off market environment, valuations tend to compress for any company that does not generate near-term profits. However, in our experience, sentiment can shift rapidly on a company like Spotify. Our valuation methodology for Spotify focuses primarily on global user growth, market expansion, and platform monetization that we believe will enable a geyser of free cash flow. At 422 million active users growing roughly 20% per year, we are well on our way. What's often missed about Spotify's monetization strategy is that it is non it is not one-dimensional. For Spotify, Getting more content onto the platform, especially non-music content, is helping to build a powerful reinforcement loop to attract new users and new advertisers. As we note below, advertising will be a large driver of gross profit and net income over the long term, and yet we believe most Wall Street analysts tend to underemphasize this gross driver. As Spotify's chief content officer said at the investor day, quote, gone are the days of ads accounting for less than 10% of Spotify's total revenue, end quote. For those interested, we recommend this link to a 20-minute Investor Day's highlights. Below are a few observations from the event. One, the TAM is objectively massive. We believe MAU growth still has a huge amount of runway, and Spotify reiterated its 1 billion MAU target by 2030, from roughly 420 million today. At scale, this enables enormous leverage to increase revenues through renegotiation with labels, price hikes and other high-margin monetization strategies that have yet to launch. Audiobooks, paid podcasts, live events, ticketing, et cetera. Two, Spotify continues to invest its capital into growth of the, pot- of the product, which we think will lead to very attractive margins at scale. Right now, the podcast business is still a drag on consolidated gross margins, but that's because it's in the early stages of growth, and there are significant costs to acquire content and build out podcast infrastructure. The strategy is working which improves the LTV of users and adds incremental value back to the platform, which is why we're excited about the reinvestment of capital. At the Investor Day, Spotify shared that 7% of listening hours on its platform are podcast hours, up from roughly 1% in 2018. And of those podcast hours, only 14% are monetized today. At scale, podcasting could reach a 50% gross margin business, a margin profile that is not reflected in today's value. Three, we believe... Spotify's advertising platform growth is akin to Facebook's mobile ad program circa 2012 or even Google AdWords in its early days. Spotify's advertising business used to be a non-essential part of our thesis. Now, it's clear that advertising growth is going to be a big driver of both revenue and margin over the, several, over the next several years. We are in the very early innings of on-demand audio advertising, but we think it has the potential to be massive, AWS-like driver for Spotify's core operations podcasts are key to driving bigger ad spends. Quote, in the U.S., when we bundle music and podcast advertising, the average size of the spend on a campaign is four times that of a music-only campaign. So we're driving bigger spends from advertisers and growing our revenue significantly. Close quote. And that's from Don Ostroff. Four, Spotify's music marketplace is a real tech business. and in high initial capital outlay, but revenue can increase without additional investment, giving it a high long-term profit potential. One of the major knocks on Spotify is that it pays out too much to music rights holders, but we can see that its marketplace it, that its marketplace business is driving rapid gross profit growth. Management now expects marketplace gross margin to increase 30% plus this year and continue to grow at healthy double digits. Quote, in 2018, our marketplace contribution to gross profit was only $20 million. In 2021, it grew to $160 million, 8x the size in just four years. We expect that number to increase another 30% or more in 2022. We see tremendous upside in Marketplace and anticipate that its financial contribution will continue to grow at a healthy double-digit rate in the years ahead. Marketplace is the quintessential example of our approach to capital allocation. There was a significant upfront cost to build and launch these offerings, but we saw compelling data which gave us the confidence to double down and invest aggressively against our goals. Paul Vogel, CFO. Five, revenue, margin targets, and price targets. In the next decade, Spotify's goal is to generate $100 billion in revenue and achieve 40% gross margins at scale with a 20% operating margin. We think this goal is not only achievable, but perhaps even conservative should any of the company's new high-margin initiatives advertising platform, audiobooks, et cetera, take off faster than anticipated. Even on a shorter-term basis, we think the stock is fundamentally mispriced. At a time when the future looks very bright for the core business, shares are down some 65% from the highs, which we see as a temporary dislocation of price and value. Even on a conservative basis with a recognition of the challenging macro environment, we think the stock should be on a path to 10x over the next several years, driven purely by improving fundamentals and earnings growth. By 2024 to 2025, we think it's likely that Spotify will be achieving significant positive earnings, growing at more than 50%, far beyond consensus expectations. Business as a game of survivor. In our experience, dramatic sell offs like the ones we've experienced this year tend to create wonderful buying opportunities. Frankly, we're quite excited about the setup for the next few years. Asset values across the board have compressed to attractive levels. We're in one of where We're of the view that dominant businesses will spring back in value and others will not. And this can happen very quickly. On the other side, as capital has now retreated from the market, unproven business models that depend on financing could be starved. It's like a big big game of Survivor. If firms cannot effectively compete in this environment, they may simply cease to exist, voted off the island. A deep research process is integral to our strategy, and especially in this environment. Not only does it help us identify dominant business models, but the process itself affords us the conviction to hold our businesses during the inevitable bouts of volatility we may face in the market. Like Arnie said in our recent Q and A, which we have attached at the end of this letter for your reference. I know it may not feel like it, but this is all normal. Give it a few months; these corrections don't last forever especially for premier growth businesses that tend to rip right back once the dust settles. When sentiment shifts, I think you'll be surprised by how quickly we come back and reach new highs. The best way to mitigate true investment risk, in our view at least, is to only own companies that have extraordinarily loyal, happy customers and who have a proven ability to generate increasing cash flow as the business scales. Despite the overall bearish sentiment we're facing today, looming economic concerns, inflationary pressures, COVID-19 lockdowns, etc., we're actually quite optimistic about the next several quarters. Stock quotes can and will diverge from reality for a period of time, but we believe our patience will be rewarded. As Arnie also said in the last Q&A, it's just a bid. As always, we appreciate your trust. We hope you can relax, enjoy your summer, and we're always around if you'd like to chat. And then we're going to go into the Q&A, which I believe they included... Yes. Okay. So this is interview with Arnie Olsen of Worm Capital. Question. Prices are down quite a bit. How are you feeling about the current environment? Arnie. It's frustrating, but nothing out of the ordinary when you zoom out and look at the big picture. This is a typical market cycle. Markets go a little haywire every decade or so, which is why I think it's so important to always go back to the basics. We own businesses. All the attention is on the market prices, but I'm focused on the actual businesses and their fundamentals. Are we dominating? Are our customers happy? Is the business expanding? Is the valuation compelling when I take a multi-year view? If the answer is yes, and the value of our business is increasing, I don't worry too much about the stock price in the short term. And that's pretty much how I'm feeling right now. Our businesses are thriving, and prices should inevitably bounce back. Our assets drive performance. The fundamentals and trajectory have not changed. This is the best way to compound wealth over the long term. Markets overreact in the short term, but over a period of years, prices catch up and reflect value. Remember, back to basics. I know this is frustrating to see falling prices on our businesses, but you should remember that it's just a bid. Some days we get good bids, some days we get bad bids. That's fine. The most important thing is that we own number one businesses. That's the key. I should also point out that these types of corrections are generally healthy. They tend to wash out all the excesses that build up in the market over time. And there was a lot of excess built up in 2020. Crazy SPAC valuations, fake electric vehicle companies, meme stocks. There was some crazy stuff. Anyone on margin, leverage, they've got to go. I've lived through a bunch of corrections and crashes. In 1987, the NASDAQ bubble, 0809, etc. I've also studied the S&P 500 history back to its inception. These boom and bust cycles are natural. They come every 10 to 15 years. The winners recover quickly and the losers never make it back. So hang in there. I know it may not feel like it, but this is all normal. Give it a few months. These corrections don't last forever, especially for premier growth businesses that tend to rip right back once the dust settles. And that's my expectation, by the way. I don't see this drawdown lasting for a particularly long time, at least not for our businesses. When sentiment shifts, I think you'll be surprised by how quickly we come back and reach new highs. So sleep easy. The most important thing to remember is that we own real businesses whose value has only increased over the last year. At some point, and maybe soon, we'll get a better bid. Until then, hang tight and try not to pay too much attention to market prices. It's just noise. We're not getting a good bid today. That's fine. We weren't planning to sell anyways. I'm not concerned whatsoever, and you shouldn't be either. Truth be told, I'm more bullish now than ever about the businesses that we own. I think we're in for a, fat- for, I think we're in for a fantastic couple of next years, with Tesla especially. Once sentiment shifts, I expect a speedy recovery in prices back to new highs and beyond. What are your thoughts? Question. What are your thoughts on Elon Musk right now and Tesla? Answer. Elon's an incredible businessman. He's probably the best entrepreneur I've ever studied, but he's also human and he's a complex guy. I don't really have an opinion on him. All I care about is Tesla's business, which is entirely separate from the headline drama. My calculation for fair value for Tesla stock is in the high teens, maybe around $2,000 per share by early next year. I believe Tesla is just in a class of its own. No other company is growing almost 80% per year at this scale with increasing margins and operating leverage. I've never seen anything like it. Wall Street still doesn't get it, and that's fine. They will. Give it a few more quarters, and the earnings growth will boggle their minds. Within the next year or two, I think there's going to be a scramble to get our shares, and that's when things are going to get exciting. I happen to think Tesla will soon be Wall Street's favorite stock. It's got everything they love in a darling. Huge growth in a global market, expanding gross and net margins, endless demand, and it's a big cap stock, which makes it highly liquid for institution stone. As a reference, look at Amazon. It was hated by Wall Street in the early to mid 2010s when we built our position and ultimately rated a buy by pretty much every sell side analyst over the past few years. On full self-driving, self it's not priced into the stock, but the advances are incredible. When Tesla achieves full self-driving, whether it's this year or in 2023 or 2024, it could be the biggest valuation repricing event of the century, and we will be there to enjoy that windfall. Question, are we heading into a recession? If so, are you going to change anything about the portfolio? Answer, I think we're midway through a recession already. GDP was negative in Q1. It will likely also be negative through Q3. Markets tend to bottom at midway through a recession, so that's a positive. I'm not changing anything in the portfolio in this environment. Stocks are still the place to be. Bond yields are still low. Even if there's cash on the sidelines now, I think eventually it has to come back into the market. Question. If prices are cheap, are you looking to buy any new businesses? Answer. In the main funds, we have a watch list of about a dozen companies. We're not buying anything imminently, but that could change quickly. For now, we're focused on the core holdings. If you're looking to invest additional cash, now is probably a good time while prices are cheap. Could things get cheaper? Of course. But I like the setup for the next few years. As you know, we also launched the new fund, which I'm enjoying managing. There's a range of businesses in that portfolio that we like, all dominant number one type of businesses in a range of industries. Those businesses also happen to be a wider mix of more traditional value and growth businesses. Question. Are you concerned about the high inflation and interest rates and the broader macro context? Answer, nope. If I've learned anything from thirty plus years of doing this, it's that there's always a reason to be afraid of markets. There's always a boogeyman, but this time is different. Close quote. Nope, it's not. The key to investing is simple: stay focused on the winning businesses. That's all that matters in the long run. On rates, don't get me started on the Fed. Between us, I think they're a bunch of yo-yos. They've reacted. They're they're reactive and always behind the curve. What they're doing makes some sense now, though. They raise rates to crush inflation, which slams stocks in the short term. Over the long term, though, it's noise. The key is fundamental business growth. We don't need low interest rates to thrive. Remember remember that the next time you turn on CNBC. Question. Do you still believe it's best to be concentrated in this environment? Answer. Absolutely. If you have a multi-year time frame and you want to beat the market, this is the only way to invest. In fact, I think being concentrated in a select group of winning businesses in this environment actually lowers our risk. I know that's not how Wall Street thinks, and that's okay. I embrace the day-to-day quote risk, but I absolutely will not tolerate business risk. I don't invest in story stocks. I tell my team constantly, we need quote wheels on the ground. The best way to lower risk is to own the best businesses. Owning a small grouping of these businesses that are beloved by customers is the best way to mitigate risk over the long term. Question, what are you doing, what are you doing during this volatility? Answer, I'm in the research bunker with with the team, which is where I love to be. I like to use these frustrating periods like this to go deep on the research and tune out most of the noise. Plus, I caught a ball game recently, Mariners, right behind the plate with my son. It was great. If you have any questions, shoot us a note and we can set up a call. As a final note, I couldn't be more excited about the next few years. We own dominant global businesses whose value is compounding every month, every quarter, and every year. I believe prices will catch up. Imagine the pilot's voice, quote, just a bit of turbulence, but nothing out of the ordinary. We'll be at our destination soon close quote. That's how I'm feeling. The bumpiness is just part of the ride. This is East 72's quarterly report number 24. Of these holdings, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs were added in the quarter. Whilst we purchased additional securities in Americo featured below, and Tassel to elevate them to the top 20. During the quarter, the S&P 500 fell 16.4%. NASDAQ 100 declined 22.5%, and the ASX 200 by 12.4%. We obviously, we obviously had a range of individual security outcomes in the portfolio, with a number of stocks falling by just over 20%, including virtually all of our microcap exposures on thin volumes with a very wide bid-offer spread. In our view, this artificially accentuates the mark to market declines. We've been in touch with management of all of our smaller companies and are satisfied with progress along the lines of our investment theses. We've had no, quote, disasters, end quote, in the quarter where we believe there to be a warranted change to the investment thesis or permanent diminution in value. We did have some benefit from a non-binding indicative takeover offer for Tassel, the Tasmanian salmon producer. This may or may not progress. If so, it won't be at the current price, but a much higher price Will rely on the management and the company effectively being willing to sell the business. They have not reached this landmark at the time of writing. In this report, we discuss the market environment and inflation slash growth ex- growth inflections, together with profiling two U.S. companies which are both family controlled, a facet we like in this environment. We believe both have some degree of resistance to an inflationary environment, being exposed to significant quote sunk cost close quote assets cable broadband in a monopolistic moving business with strong asset backing there is a catch however which explains why they are both in our opinion underpriced our exposure to the cable business charter communications via its largest shareholder liberty broadband which is geared but like charter has a ferocious appetite for buying back its own shares americo ticker symbol uhal which owns two insurers, also owns and manages 73 million square feet of self-storage units, but most meaningfully owns the largest dominating self-moving business in America, U-Haul. U-Haul is so dominant in trucks, trailers attached to these storage depots as be almost monopolistic with one of the strongest moats we have ever observed, in which it continues to invest to take the walls around the moat to even higher levels we have to simplify the analysis since we could write a tome on the company whose shares are we believe are underpriced. This is a $9 billion business with virtually no sell-side coverage. Bear market arrives. The June quarter decline in US share prices brought about the 13th bear market, defined as a 20% decline from the prior peak since World War II. All bear markets are different, but shum- some share common traits. The 13 periods share two of three common traits, the exogenous shock, oil and COVID, rising interest rates, and or conclusion of period of excessive speculation and unwind of leverage. Excessive speculation comes about as investors believe there is some type of, quote, new paradigm, close quote, which will elevate certain types of companies and change the business world. This can be as simple as financial engineering, for example, the leverage buyout slash junk bond boom of the 1980s. Virtually every new paradigm emerges during a period of very easy money and dies when that supply dries up, especially when the, quote, new, new thing, close quote, has failed to generate sufficient free cash flow to survive. The current cycle may have been crazier in places, but in essence is no different. This time around, we have had three main sets of businesses. One, fintech, usually a new payments method, example, buy now, pay later, payments transfer or, or cryptocurrencies themselves and their derivative businesses, exchanges, exchanges, Cloud-based subscription organizational businesses, offering assorted ways to reorganize your work daily life, ranging from software to stationary bikes with software, and online retail and retail systems, offering the general populace the opportunity for innumerable side hustles at vast margin to the platform. The worst of these businesses has started to see their share prices decline, terminal for some, in early 2021, but remaining at multiples of prior levels as late as November 2021 before commencing a slide to levels some 75% below the peak. As we noted in quarterly report 22, and quarterly report 23, for a bear market to occur would require a derating of the major cash flow producing technology companies. This has duly happened. The table at the left shows the waves of price declines, which have beset the large A technology stocks since the end of 2021, which largely coincides with the peak in the S&P 500 on January 4th, 2022. It also shows the disjointed manner in which they reached that peak with steep rises in Q4 2021. The March quarter was more shock or was more stock specific based on results and guidance, whilst the June quarter was clearly quote all embracing close quote. These declines have seen the Nasdaq fall 31% from the November 2021 peak, but with Netflix down 75% from its peak and Meta down 58%. Inflation, why it's a worry. The arithmetic makes it plain that inflation is a far more devastating tax than anything that has been enacted by our legislators. The inflation tax has a fantastic ability to consume capital. Warren Buffett, How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. If the erosion of a new paradigm is the art, then the science is the valuation mathematics of stock prices. Inflation plays havoc with the science in many different ways. Inflation, by its nature, demands higher interest rates to compensate for the loss of purchasing power from holding a nominal amount of cash. Hence, the interest rates at which future cash flows of an enterprise are discounted back to present-day values increases and thereby reduces the present value of the company. Where the company is currently unprofitable but is expected to create cash flow profits some years in the future, the impact of this arithmetic is far more devastating than to a currently profitable enterprise. Simplistically, this is why stocks with imputed high growth rates suffer correspondingly more in rising rate environments than, quote, value counterparts. There are innumerable uh, subtleties. So-called value stocks are often pro-cyclical, like commodity producers, airlines, etc., and so are doing well as core businesses, and so are doing as well as core business in any case. To understand why investors might be petrified at recent events, the long-term monthly inflation rate of "quote sticky goods," close quote, in the U.S. clearly shows why. Using this data from the Federal Reserve Board of Atlanta shows the prevailing inflation rate on sticky goods is around five percent per annum. Since the U.S. emerged from recession in early 1983, the average month year-over-year sticky CPI change has been 3.05%. However, in the period between September 2008 and November 2021, there were no sticky CPI numbers with a three-handle, 3%. But whilst this sticky number is up around 5% currently, the overall CPI number incorporating food and energy is up over 8%. Hence, the gap between core style inflation, followed assiduously by central banks, and the real world incorporating food and other volatile items is at its highest level since 1973. Little wonder some central banks are having problems assessing the fact that consumers will start to struggle. The problem for investors is not just a higher discount rate, but the impact of changing expectations. If we are fairly certain about about inspected inflation, we can build it into a valuation model. The problem is once we move off the type of low base we have had for so long, Both the overall economy and investors start to encounter unexpected inflation, changes they simply don't expect and so haven't been able to factor into modeling. Of course, in doing so, this creates volatility as valuations ratchet down. In essence, this is the type of behavior we saw in the third week of June when investors faced with another U.S. CPI above expectations aggressively marked down the S&P by 5.8% in a week. Moreover, as inflation reaches higher levels, in itself, it becomes far more volatile, suggesting investors have to build in further levels of risk premium in valuing assets. So we've gone from low expected inflation, roughly 2%, plus no unexpected inflation, plus no inflation volatility, to higher expected inflation, around 5%, unexpected inflation, say 3%, and inflation volatility. The impact, if sustained, of this change is nasty indeed. But why might we be worrying too much? In quarterly report 20, a full year ago, which shows how wrong central banks have been, we broke down the influences on inflation to one, demand pool, strong consumer demand on the emergence from pandemic impacting unrestricted supply, two, cost plus, where exogenous factors impact the impact on individual components of a supply chain, increasing its price or availability, And three, expectations, where consumers start to build in higher levels of inflation to their purchasing decisions by accepting higher prices or modifying behavior, and producers feel able to enact indiscriminate price rises. It should be clear from the preceding section that the latter is the most dangerous. Once the Vox Populi get onto the inflation bandwagon, it becomes ingrained. Getting it out of the psyche of the population is not easy. For example, Australia spent years with Hawke and Keating's union agreements trying to do so in the early to mid-1980s. We know the RBA is petrified about expectations. The latest RBA minutes in the fourth paragraph containing contains the meaningful phrase, medium-term inflation expectations remain well anchored, and it is important that this remains the case. Indeed, it is. Our comments in March 2021 and June 2021 cautioned about how far beyond the curve, behind the curve central bankers in the U.S. and Australia really were, and that they were happy to ignore emergent signs of inflation, fearful that the full recovery from the economic impact of COVID had not been achieved. It was clear to us that both Federal Reserve and RBA should have been t- tapping on the brakes. Instead, they both fitted a new Ferrari V8 Turbo and floored the accelerator with continued buying of bonds to keep market interest rates low and fueling a real asset boom in residential property. Our fears were that inflation would move up sharply, it has, but also that markets would eventually see this and move interest rates dramatically higher. Additionally, as is always the case in the valuation of financial assets, there's a third component to the pricing equation, a risk premium. The risk here, central bank credibility, has been badly damaged, and so investors demand a higher return to be exposed to their behavior. As much as anything, the sharp downturns in equities and upturns in central bank interest rates in June seem to have been about reestablishing central bank credibility as inflation fighters and trying to get ahead of the curve from a position some way back. This, of course, introduces far more volatility into interest rate settings because of its unexpected nature. If you believe this opinion to be fanciful, contemplate why the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia did a TV interview for the first time in 12 years. It's worth noting that the impact of higher mortgage rates in Australia is operating on an economy where mortgage credit is around 94% of GDP. That's 20 percentage points higher than the US equivalent. There are clear signs that the demand pull and cost push aspects appear to be moderating. This is partly because of the highly leveraged nature of the economy, especially Australia, where the increased cost of mortgages is combining with the pre-existing cost push aspects to rip money from consumers' wallets. When looking at base effects, Remember, inflation is measured as year-over-year change in CPI. If there are no further influences, i.g. oil prices do not rise further, commodity prices fall, then annual changes in the level of CPI will start to abate. If demand pull inflation starts to subside, there will be a negative influence on equity prices as profit revisions will be negative from a revenue growth perspective. They are already under pressure from a cost perspective with material and service inputs, e.g. freight, having already increased in price, now being followed by labor cost inflation. The global index formulated by Fredos below, which is an amalgam of widely differing route pricing, is currently $6,500. The current $6,500 index price incorporates over $12,400 a container from East Asia to the Mediterranean, down to $687 from U.S. to East Coast to Europe. Average global freight rates per container, which increased from $1,700 in July 2020 to a peak around $11,000 in October last year, are now down below the levels of a year ago, 6,500 against 7,600. Assorted commodities, notably copper, cotton, wheat, and lumber, are down sharply from late 2021 and early February-May 2022 peaks. With the Brent oil price abating from the financial market-driven highs of $125 a barrel a few weeks ago, the food and energy additions to sticky CPI may well be abating. However, in particular, the bond market is telling you something. 10-year Treasury yields in the U.S. are down from a recent peak, mid-June, of 3.5% to just above 3%. Moreover, the break-even inflation rate over 5 years and 10 years deduced from deducting the yield on a treasury index bond from that of a nominal treasury bond of the same duration has fallen sharply. A recent peak of 3.6 per annum to 2.6 per annum on the fives and 3% per annum to 2.3% per annum on the tens. What if it turns out that we are close to the inflation peak, even if there is a technical recession in the US? Well, by and large, it's actually good for equities. The chart below shows that from the peak in inflation, even if there is a recession, equities measured by the S&P 500 are typically higher 12 months out. If there is no recession, typically substantially so, roughly 20% or more. My suspicion is that the orange line, showing roughly 10 to 15% additional downside, might turn out to be more applicable. S&P 500 earnings for current year 2023 are currently forecast at 250 with S&P 500 around 3785 at the end of June this suggests a reasonable multiple of 15.1 times PE for next year with 10 year treasuries at just above 3% yields that's not especially unreasonable however the 250 earnings per share estimate seems too high in light of the weakening US economy and cost pressures hence in our eyes it suggests where it's it suggests where earnings per share estimates go will dictate where the market goes 10 to 15 percent reductions in 2023 earnings forecasts don't seem especially outlandish. Of course, a further 10 to 15 percent downside in the S&P 500 would bring back would bring that index back to the 3,200 to 3,300 range, making it around a 32 to 33 percent correction from the peak, very much in line with the average. This is not an attempt to quote call the bottom close quote in the next quarter, but to suggest that there are many interesting opportunities around in the midst of exceptionally gloomy sentiment. Our strategy. We are geared with two point with $2.26 of net positive exposure after hedges for every $1 of equity. Six of our top 20 investments are holding companies. EL, XOR, Amco, uh, Volkswagen, Porsche, Odette, trading at a 40% or more discount to the assessed nav. Hall is slightly less. Two financials, City and Virtue, trading at mid mid-single digits PEs. Goldman is not, but we bought at below tangible book value. And two specialist microcaps, Agency, YBR, where we can see greater than 100% upside once certain capital management measures are enacted, despite some industry headwinds. Our two Agra-Aqua exposures both have corporate appeal. Hence, we have a we have series of exposures trading at large-scale discounts to assessed value at prevailing prices. As stock prices recover, the value of their assets should improve, together with a closure of the discount lining up with the cable cowboy, Liberty Broadband, LBRD. 81-year-old John Malone is a storied American operator and investor in the broad media and telecom arena. Malone is, of course, a player who frightened the bejesus out of Rupert Murdoch by acquiring 19% of News Corp stock in 2004 to 2006, before agreeing an asset swap in in 2006 to allow Rupert to sleep at night. The early part of Malone's career is laid out in the 2002 book Cable Cowboy, which documents the growth of TCI from its origins in 1958, controlled by its original founder, Bob Magnus. Malone joined up as a 32-year-old CEO in late 1972 in a period where most of the nascent cable businesses had saddled themselves with outlandish amounts of debt. TCI's debt at the time was equivalent to 17x its revenues. The story of the growth of TCI where its stock multiplied over 900 fold between 1972 and 1998 prior to its sale to AT&T in 1999 is documented in William Thorndike's The Outsiders, together with a focus on three of Malone's recipes to accelerate shareholder returns, usually to his own, as well as shareholder benefit, namely liberal use of debt in an appropriate manner against long-term cash flows at low interest rates and with lengthy maturity, use of try. Hardit capital structures with A, B, and C share classes having respectively 1, 10, and nil votes per share. Malone invariably retains control through ownership of the B shares, as in the case with LBRD. Use of spin-outs and tracker stocks to make transparent the valuation of individual components of the company. This is best seen in Liberty Media, where the entirety of the company's assets are attributed to three tracker stocks. Formula One, Atlanta Braves, and Liberty Cirrus XM. You can't buy stock in Liberty Media. Malone has historically been a marvelous seller of assets, to and buyer of them at distressed prices from large media telco conglomerates. This reached an early culmination with the sale of TCI to at t in June 1998 for $55 billion, settled in March 1999. Malone had established Liberty in 1991 as a means of separating the more speculative assets, cable programming, regional sports, Plus a small amount of TCI sub- subscribers from TCI through a complex exchange offer where shareholders in TCI were able to exchange shares in that company in exchange for rights to subscribe to Liberty. Less than one third of the shares were taken up, which gave Malone on borrowed money roughly 20% of the B-class Liberty sh- super voting stock and 40% voting control. Once the AT&T transaction had settled, Liberty gained additional cash but left Malone free to explore options in the telco, cable, TV markets. Liberty Broadband is one of seven structures encompassing nine securities, including tracker stocks within the Liberty Empire. There's Liberty Media, noted above, which consists of Formula One, the Braves, and Sirius XM Radio. Liberty Global, providing broadband and mobile in Europe. Liberty Latin America, which is just a replica of Liberty Global in South and Central America. Uh, Curate Retail, a home shopping entity encompassing HSN and QVC. Liberty TripAdvisor, which holds a 21% economic stake in TripAdvisor, and LMF Acquisitions Corp. a SPAC, and Liberty Broadband. At March, at the end of March 2022, Liberty Equity is comprised of three classes of the three classes noted above: 22.56 million single-vote A class shares, 2.54 million 10-vote B class shares, and 139.9 million non-voting C shares. Malone controls. LBRD via his ownership of 92% super voting B shares, despite holding a 2.1 economic or 2.1% economic interest. LBRD has two assets. GCI Holdings, a specialist communication, and entertainment provider to Alaska, acquired in December 2020 for an effective equity value of $3.06 billion, attaching debt of $2.2 billion and other liabilities, were offset by an investment in charter and a 26% interest in charter communication, an $81 billion equity capitalized cable network with over 30 million residential customers, and 2.16 million small and medium business relationships. Hence, it's clear that the value within LBRD is virtually exclusively driven by charter, its share price, and an intriguing buyback mechanism, which even more inexorably links the two companies. Charter, which operates as, quote, Spectrum, close quote, in 41 U.S. states, dates back to 1980, but the formative transactions took place from 1998 onwards, with Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, as chair. The company expanded rapidly by debt-funded acquisitions and concluded 2008 with $21.8 billion of debt against just overall $6.5 billion in revenue. Charter filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in February 2009, but re-emerged with $8 billion less debt in November the same year. The seminal transactions for the company occurred in March and May of 2015 when the company announced the acquisition of Bright House Networks, the Time Warner Cable respectively, aided by a $5 billion equity injection from Liberty Broadband. The cable business is ostensibly about preventing churn, customers coming but staying for short periods of time, thereby rendering their lifetime value to the company lower than the cost of attracting them. The TV side of the business is not especially profitable, Neither yet is the wireless business. However, the core cable business, supply and broadband, continues to grow in line with consumption of streaming services and is a high margin sunk cost business. The threat to broadband comes from new technologies such as 5G wireless and fiber to the home, which provides potential for overbuild of existing cable networks. Charter has a significant cost competitive advantage, which it is able to utilize to price its services under the mainstream competition and provide significant protection. This, together with the sunk cost capital aspect, provides credence to Charter as an inflation hedge. Charter has an equity market value of $81.2 billion. The shares have fallen from highs of 825 in September of 2021. Charter spent spend around $7 to $7.5 billion on CapEx per annum against operating cash flow of $16.2 billion in 2021. This provides the shares with a free cash flow yield on equity of 10.6% if maintained. Pre-tax and interest, the equivalent free cash flow yield on the enterprise value is around 7%. Given the likelihood that long bond rates in the U.S. may even have peaked in the short term at 3.5%, these yields, even for a slowing growing cable company, are very attractive. However, looking out two to three years, they are accentuated by strong equity buyback programs, which have averaged over $3.5 billion a quarter in the past two years, which at prevailing prices would theoretically retire close to 17%, 17% of the issued capital. One aspect that prevents such an aggressive share repurchase, but accentuates our view of holding LBRD as a play on Charter, is the unique arrangement between the two companies. As part of LBRD and charter shareholder agreement, LBRD cannot hold greater than a 26% interest in Charter, and so sells Charter shares to Charter as part of that company's buyback program. This is done on a monthly basis based on Charter's buybacks in the prior month. In turn, this enables Liberty to repurchase its own shares from the cash proceeds of the Charter sales. So LBRD effectively represents a slightly geared and discounted entry to Charter's auto sarcophagy whilst also engaging in the same self-cannibalistic practice. <laughs> Liberty gains ex- significant cash flow to retire its own shares by the forced sale by the forced resale of Charter Securities to maintain the shareholding at 26% in light of Charter's aggressive buybacks. In essence, two connected spinning cogs. Liberty has retired a stunning 16.3% of its own A and C class shares in the 15 months ended since 2020, at an average price of $162 a share against the prevailing level at the end of June of $115. This suggests future buybacks will be as aggressive as, as responsibly possible. From an asset value standpoint, we estimate Liberty at $115 per share to trade at an 18% discount to the value of its two assets after the recent $170 million sale of Skyhook's business. Amerco, Opacity creates significant opportunity. U-Haul is the fourth largest self-storage unit owner in the U.S. with ownership of just over 50 million square feet of these properties, along with management of a further 23 million square feet. That's a pretty robust starting asset, but when you combine it with a fleet of 186,000 trucks, 128 trailers, and 46,000 towing devices under the U-Haul banner, you have an astounding integrated, moded, moving, and storage business across the U.S. U-Haul has a storied history, having been established as a one-way rental company in 1945 and now having 23,000 locations across North America, 2,100 company-owned, and 21,100 independent franchise dealers. The company has a near monopoly in DIY intercity moves, having 10 times the number of locations as its nearest competitor, Penske. Whilst Penske employs a fleet 52% the size of U-Haul, a likely significant yet undisclosed portion of the Penske fleet is made of commercial rental vehicles. Next largest is Avis, who has a truck rental fleet a little under 6% of that of U-Haul. Amco is controlled by the Showman family. Chairman Joe and family control 42.7% of the small float of only 19.6 million shares At $478 a share, the equity pricing of the company is just under $9.4 billion. With an adjusted $3.4 billion in net debt, the enterprise value is a very low $12.7 billion. We can compare U-Haul's in-situ storage portfolio, which has grown from around 15 million square feet in nine years, with five publicly listed large-scale peer REITs. We acknowledge this is a theoretical exercise in splitting the real assets, storage, from the business, trucks since the show are highly unlikely to ever securitize the properties because of the massive competitive advantage brought by the combination. But it's an exercise worth doing to get to the bottom of the magnitude of undervaluation. By comparison with U-Haul, REITs have an obvious tax advantage, but also benefit in investor's eyes from transparency. If we ignore the fact that some have equity in highly geared unconsolidated joint ventures or have management income streams or significant minority ownerships and subtrusts, these minority interests are especially difficult to cater for. We have made an attempt to deal with these inconveniences for the peers, but must concede that our maths have more than the usual caveats. As a guide, the average facility in America has around 72,000 to 77,000 square feet of available space at roughly 110 square feet per unit, renting out at $18.75 per square foot per year. Valuations vary widely for obvious reasons. The table below shows the four largest public storage REITs by area, the smallest of which is smaller size than Amerco. are valued by the equity market at an equivalent EV to square foot of $273, which would value U-Haul's owned portfolio at $13.6 billion against a current company EV of $12.7 billion. The comparison becomes even more ludicrous when including managed properties. Even the second lowest rated of the five Reed Peers, LSI, at 153.64 square feet, suggests the owned Americo portfolio to be worth $7.7 billion on a standalone basis, leaving $4.9 billion of attributable of a attributable value to the U-Haul and insurance businesses. Americo owns two insurance businesses, a property casualty insurer, RepWest, which mainly does claims management for the U-Haul portfolio of vehicles, and a life company, Oxford and its various subsidiaries. Both businesses are profitable and have combined equity bases of $736 million, not inconsequential. Over the past two years, the two companies combined have recorded average per annum pre-tax profits of $62 million. Based on Deloitte analysis, the typical global life company has transacted in a willing buyer-seller deal at 1.15x book value in the past year. The equivalent in the PNC business has been at slightly higher 1.2 times. As a consequence, this suggests that Amarco businesses might be worth a combined $860 million, equivalent to 13.9 times average pre-tax earnings in 2021 and 2022. The key piece of opacity within Amarco, which mitigates against transparent analysis, is the binding together in the segmental accounts of moving and storage. In other words, the self-storage rental returns, which we are valuing above on an asset basis, are not broken out from the truck and trailer rentals. Hence, the analysis which follows is our own work and not cross-checked with the company to establish what we believe the pure vehicle, trailer rental, and parts sales might be valued at by the equity market. With that warning, the good news is that there is respectable consistency across the five large listed REIT peers in respect to costs and revenues per square foot. The good news is that Amerco does disclose revenues from self-storage, which have compounded at just under 17% per annum over the past nine years as the portfolio has continued to grow and occupancy has improved. As an estimate, based on the cost structure of peers, Where, but where we expect Amarco to operate at a more parsimonious level, we believe operating costs of about $5 per square foot per annum to be a reasonable and possibly conservative estimate. On that basis, across the owned portfolio, this would imply operating profit of, worth of roughly $380 million in the year ended March 2022 from self-storage ownership on revenues of $617 million. Hence, our portfolio estimate valuation of $7.7 billion represents an earnings yield of roughly 5% on an asset which management in its latest earnings call notes is, quote, continuing to fill at historically high rates, close quote. It explains why Amarco is not retiring equity despite the apparent discount to value. They see further opportunities in the ownership component of the business given demographic changes in the U.S. and shortage of available sites for others, as well as zoning difficulties in urban environments. With the self-storage property revenues backed out of the the segmentals for moving and storage, we can hazard an estimate of the profitability of moving encompassing vehicle and trailer rentals. Based on the U-Haul segmental profit analysis reproduced below, This would suggest the remaining moving and storage business operations have to have burgeoned in the past two years with an operating profit of $1.6 billion in EBITDA in 2022, up from an estimated $1.25 billion in 2021, excluding profits on vehicle sales. Why so strong? U-Haul had been slowly expanding the truck fleet, adding 10,000 trucks between March 2020 and 2022. However, the key driver has been the average revenue per truck per annum. Which has bounced from 15,700 in 2020 to 17,520 in 2022 to a hefty 21,872 in the latest year. That's inflation for you. 18% compound growth in the revenue per truck for the two years. We are unsure how sustainable this growth over the past two years will prove to be, but management's insights from the latest earnings call is encouraging with their assessment that, quote, About half the increase was coming from transactions, and the other half was split between the number of miles driven by our customers and the rate that we were charging per mile, close quote. What is surprising is that these results have emerged during a period when Americans have been proportionately their least mobile since data was tracked in 1948, with, according to the U.S. Census Bureau statistics, only 9.8% of the population relocating. In conclusion, we see Americo as being able to post significant growth over the next three to five years. This will come at the expense of capital management, despite the gap between equity price and value, with management undertaking ongoing expansion plans. Given the massive competitive advantage, it seems reasonable but does not mean a lack of free cash flow to fund equity retirement. It also means the, that advancement in the share price will require management the, will require the management growth thesis to play out. Given their stock holding, they have plenty of incentive. An idea of the gap between listed equity price and underlying value comes from our sum of the parts analysis. This suggests that U-Haul would be worth between $710 and $1,016 per share in its present state, an uplift of 48% to 133% against prevailing June 2022 levels. Reverse engineering at the prevailing price of $470 per share and backing out the self-storage property at low values together with insurance, we believe we are paying around $4.2 billion for U-Haul, equivalent to less than 3x average EBITDA in the past two years and very roughly one times revenues in March of 2022. We believe investing in U-Haul represents ownership of an equity or of an entity with near monopoly attributes in one-way DIY moving. Moreover, We view this monopoly as difficult to erode in a product which has little scope for further disruption. Against other comparatives with significant moats to their business, pricing power, and a dominant position, we believe the calculated valuation metrics to be extremely low. This is Alluvial Capital's Q2 2022 letter to partners. Dear partners, Alluvial Fund declined 9.9% in the second quarter, it is is down 16.5% year-to-date. By contrast, the Russell Microcap Index lost 19% this quarter and has fallen 25.1% in 2022. It's ugly out there. At the halfway point of the year, global stock markets have recorded one of the worst performances in modern market history. Fortunately for us, in keeping with the historical pattern, Alluvial Fund has managed to avoid a portion of the decline. Our holdings, with their robust balance sheets and durable cash flows, have fared far better than the hypergrowth and hypo-profit story stocks that investors bid to dizzying heights last year. Nevertheless, our holdings are public. They rise and fall on the whims of investors, and investors sure are a capricious bunch. When mounting stress and fear cause the stock market to tumble, our holdings are not wholly unaffected. I don't worry about falling stock prices. I don't enjoy them by any means, but they don't keep me up at night. What I do worry about is permanent loss of capital. There are a variety of ways to achieve a permanent loss, but at the heart of each is the same error, overpaying. There's a school of thought, a very popular one at present, that says investors should spend all their time identifying the market's highest quality companies and ignore all the rest, and that once these paragons of virtue are found, nearly any price can be paid for their shares and a good outcome assured. I am not a subscriber. I am willing to invest in average or even subpar businesses provided they are priced so modestly that a large margin of safety exists. A company does not have to have a dominant uh, place in its industry, invent the next iPhone, or become a global household name for shareholders to earn an outstanding return. Indeed, a company can do all of these things and still deliver only middling returns if the achievements were priced in from the beginning. I would rather spend time finding situations where the market's expectations of a company are so low or barely exist at all that even modest success means a much higher stock price. It's much tougher to overpay for a company where the market expects little than to overpay for one from which the market expects continuous and unbounding success. Now, investing in low expectations companies and securities is not for the impatient, but neither is Alluvial Fund, the rundown. Our portfolio's holdings are relatively unchanged from last quarter, but multiple companies reported meaningfully positive developments. The market doesn't care, but that is the normal state of affairs during bear markets. When the fear subsides, fundamentals will matter once again. P10 Inc. In June, I attended the P10 shareholder meeting in Dallas. Co-CEO Robert Alpert presided and did a fine job providing an overview of the company's initiatives and fielding questions from the handful of investors in attendance. I asked if P10 were considering how to add permanent capital vehicles to its asset under management, and the answer was an enthusiastic yes. So I was pleased to see that the company announced a large indirect investment in Crossroads Impact Corp. Crossroads will serve as a growing source of permanent capital for P10's impact investing platform, Enhanced Capital. The upshot is additional high margin recurring revenue for P10. P10 has traded down this year in sympathy with other alternative asset managers. However, the firm continues to grow its base of contractually guaranteed fee revenue. A murkier economic outlook makes fundraising more challenging, but it will not permanently dampen P10's prospects. Shares are worth at least $18, 50% upside from here, and more if the company can execute on acquisition opportunities. Unidata SPA. If there's a bull market to be found, it may be in the grim headlines from Europe. Energy woes. Looming recession. Resigning premieres. It comes as no surprise that investors have done an about-face on several of our European holdings despite dirt-cheap valuations and long-term industry tailwinds. But a continental recession, even a deep one, will not bring the expansion of broadband internet in Italy to a halt. Unidata keeps on hustling to build out its network, and the customer list keeps growing. More recently, Unidata announced a joint venture with an infrastructure fund to co-develop and manage one of Italy's first energy-efficient data centers. Creative moves like this will enable Unidata to roughly double its cash flows by 2025. I expect shares to reach 100 euros well before then. Garrett Motion Preferreds. Garrett Motion is an exercise in patience. Just as it seemed, the global automotive market was about to recover to pre-COVID production. Along came Russia, inflation, and the threat of recession. Still, the company is making great strides in improving and simplifying its balance sheet. In June, the company redeemed the rest of the Series B preferreds it issued to Honeywell when it exited bankruptcy in 2021. With the Series Bs out of the way, Garrett Motion is free to dedicate its cash flow to continued deleveraging or share buybacks. At some point in the next year or two, the conditions will be met for Garrett Motion to convert these preferreds and simplify their capital structure. If the market stubbornly refuses to value Garrett Motion shares at a reasonable price, I believe the company will pursue a sale or merger. Until then, our preferred shares will continue to accrue dividends at an attractive yield. The preferreds are worth at least $15 today and possibly $20 or more if the company can reduce leverage and or buy back shares as the automotive market recovers. Pegroco Invest AB Preferreds. As expected, Pegroco has resumed paying quarterly dividends on its preferred shares. However, the company has yet to pay out the arrearage that built up while COVID ravaged the economy. This arrearage continues to build and now exceeds SEC 24 per share. At 110 SEC, Pegroco Preferreds offer a distribution yield of 8.6% with investors to receive an additional dividend of 22% of the trading price at some point in the future. Pegroco's asset value covers the preferred and dividends and arrears several times over, and Pegroco has recently taken steps to monetize the, a few investments and build liquidity. Pegroco is an example of a special situation that has worked very well for, for Alluvial Fund, but we're not quite done here. Tim Essay. Poor Tim. Despite continued excellent results, shares have been tanked and trashed as the Polish construction market slows. The market now values Tim's at just four times my estimate of operating income. Citing poor market conditions, the company announced that it would delay its planned IPO of its e-commerce logistics business, 3PL. Tim has gone from very cheap to wildly cheap this year. The market is too focused on near-term headwinds in Tim's electronic components distribution business and is missing the continued growth and huge opportunity at 3PL. Management apparently agrees and has announced a repurchase plan covering 14% of Tim's shares outstanding. With Polish investors as morose as they have been in years, it could take time for Tim's shares to rebound, but the market cannot ignore Tim's profitability and growth forever. Introducing Copper Property CTL, Pass-Through Trust. We have a new holding in Copper Property Pass-Through Trust. That's a bit of a mouthful, so we'll call it CPT. CPT is a highly attractive liquidation opportunity. CPT was created out of the JCPenney bankruptcy to own a variety of JCPenney stores, store properties and distribution centers. CPT is a liquidating trust tasked with selling off all 146 remaining properties within three years and distributing monthly net rents received until then. These properties are on an 18-year triple net master lease to new JCPenney. The reorganized JCPenney is well-financed and profitable. CPT's market cap is $956 million. The trust has a small cash balance and zero debt. Gross annual rents from JCPenney are $111 million. After the cost of management fees and sales efforts related expenses, the trust distributes nearly $100 million to shareholders annually. This 10% plus yield is simply too high for a geographically diversified collection of commercial properties on long term triple net leases to a good quality tenant. Today, trust units are trading hands at around $12.75. Ultimately, I expect us to receive liquidation proceeds of $18 or more within three years, plus $1.3 per share in annualized distributions for an internal rate of return of at least 20%. The faster that CPT winds up, the better the outcome. Know anyone who wants to buy some real estate? Expert market fireworks. Since last year's SEC rule change that effectively eliminated public quotation of non-SEC reporting securities, we have continued to hold a select few of the affected stocks, viewing them as quasi-permanent holdings. These are high-quality companies with competent, well-aligned management teams. The kind of holdings you can tuck away in a portfolio for a decade or longer with full confidence that the value of investments is growing at an attractive rate. I know we won't often hear from these companies, but they will occasionally surprise us with positive developments. It's an exciting day when an annual report from one of them shows up in my mailbox. This month's entertainment came in came in the form of annual report from Boston Sand and Gravel. The company had an excellent year, earning $80 per share in operating profit. The balance sheet couldn't be stronger, with $250 per share in net cash and at least $100 per share in non-core real estate. Shares most recently changed hands at $610. Boston Sand and Gravel will have ups and downs, but its strategic location within the city limits of Boston ensures it will enjoy steady demand for its products for decades to come. If sold, Boston Sand and Gravel would fetch at least $1,800 per share. It won't be sold anytime soon, but even families adamantly against selling sometimes change course when a generational transition happens or a seller simply makes a generous offer. That's what happened with Ashgrove Cement a few years back. Until then, we will enjoy a growing stream of dividends and a more and more profitable and valuable Boston sand and gravel under the experienced leadership of the Boylan family. Another alluvial fund expert market holding, making waves is Cuisine Solutions, an innovator in food technology. Unlike a lot of innovators, Cuisine Solutions manages to be highly profitable while dedicating millions to research and development. The company has spent the last few years constructing new state-of-the-art facilities to produce its sous vide items for sale at Costco and Starbucks, and for use by several airlines and restaurant chains. Turns out, it wasn't just a few eccentric investors who noticed. In June, Bain Capital stepped up to invest $250 million in Convertible Preferred, valuing Cuisine Solutions at over $1 billion. Bain's Investment provides ample capital for expansion and sets the company on a path to an IPO and exchange listing in a few years. To my amazement, we have been able to acquire quite a few additional cuisine solutions shares since the announcement at prices 60% below the conversion price of Bain's investment. I expect to cuisine solu- I expect Cuisine Solutions to reward us richly in the coming years. Until then, if you don't if you see their product somewhere, give them a try. You won't be disappointed. As I stated at the beginning of the letter, it's ugly out there. Given the prevailing uncertainty, investors are reluctant to commit new funds to any companies facing short-term headwinds. But that's not all bad. The market is offering us a chance to invest in many different companies at shockingly low multiples of profits a few years out. That doesn't mean these same shares won't experience further declines or or that they will regain all of their lost ground quickly once economic sentiment and conditions improve. Investor confidence, once it's gone, takes time to return. But I have little doubt that buying shares of high quality enterprises at mid-single digit multiples of 2025 earnings or free cash flows will prove as rewarding as ever over a reasonable time frame. I've been very willing to, quote, provide liquidity to some panicky sellers and stocks I know well, and I expect these purchases will work out well once some of the fear subsides. I thank you for your new confidence or for your confidence in Alluvial Fund. This month we welcome our largest investment by a new partner in multiple years and several other new and existing partners stepped up with additional capital for investment in the quarter. I continue to hold my entire investable assets within Alluvial Fund. I welcome questions from partners about our portfolio and strategy. Please do not hesitate to reach out by phone or email. Expect to receive details about an upcoming webinar in the next few weeks. Best regards, Dave Waters. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by SP Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T I K R.com forward slash Hive.